Well, good morning on this lovely, beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, let's pray, shall we, as we come to consider God's word together. Our Father in heaven, um, we pray that you'd help us to understand what it is you're speaking to us. You'd give us grace and strength to respond in faith to what we hear. Uh, we pray very much for your help. Lord, we pray that uh, despite the weather around us, uh, that you would stir in our hearts the sunshine of your love. Amen. Well, uh, what is it that you do with guilt? What, what do you do with guilt? Now, guilt can swallow us up in all kinds of different ways. Uh, sometimes we have just a kind of general sense of, of wrongness all the time. A few years ago, the Guardian newspaper published an article which began like this. It said, I feel guilty about everything. Already today, I felt guilty about having said the wrong thing to a friend. Then I felt guilty about avoiding that friend because of the wrong thing I said. Plus, I haven't called my mother yet today. Guilty. I gave the wrong kind of food to my child. Guilty. I've been cutting corners at work lately. Guilty. I skipped breakfast. Guilty. I snacked instead. Double guilty. I'm taking up all this space in a world with not enough space in it. Guilty. 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 Sometimes we feel like that, don't we? Or, or so sometimes our guilt focuses on just one act, on one thing, like Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare, who conspired with her husband to murder, and then over time her guilt grew and grew, and she became insane with it. And she would sleepwalk, desperately trying to wash the blood from her hands. And she would cry out, I can still, here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. In various guises, we all know what it is to feel guilty. The question is, what do we do with that? Well, we this morning are approaching uh, the, the highest point in Matthew's account of Jesus' life. And as Matthew gets there, he really slows down his telling. Uh, we've seen how the religious leaders have schemed to get their hands on Jesus. How Judas, one of the disciples, has betrayed him. Jesus has been arrested. Last week, he was brought before the religious court and there before the religious court, his divinity was revealed as he declared his identity as the rider on the clouds who would sit on the eternal throne of heaven. And in contrast, we saw last week Peter's denial and his depravity displayed in that. Well, today we pick up events in the first light of the morning. Verse 1 of chapter 27. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. See, that, that religious court did not have the authority to put Jesus to death. Uh, in this time, the land of Judea was under Roman occupation. Um, and so the, the real power belonged to the Romans. The religious leaders had to work out how to get Jesus condemned in a Roman court. And Matthew tells how that happens. And as he does, there's a, a number of different people who come in. We've got these religious leaders. We've got Judas. We've got Pilate, the governor, Pilate's wife, and a crowd of people. And of course, we've got Jesus in the midst of it all. Uh, I think there are two themes that emerge in this passage. Uh, the two themes are, first of all, the innocence of the Lord Jesus. And then secondly, the guilt of everyone else. The, let's think about these things. The first thing, the innocence of Jesus Christ. Let's bring in some witnesses. First of all, let's bring in Judas. Judas knew Jesus intimately. Uh, they've been close friends for a number of years. Uh, Judas had seen Jesus in all weathers. Um, he, he, knew, he knew Jesus as well as anyone else, really. Uh, we might wonder why Judas chose to betray Jesus. And there are a number of different options we could come up with, but none of those options is because Jesus did anything wrong. 
Uh, But now we see in our passage that it all catches up with Judas. In in verse 3, he is seized with remorse. He returns the bribe. He says, I have betrayed innocent blood. Now, Now, at this point, if Judas could imagine something wrong that Jesus had done, it would go some way to excusing what he did. But he could find nothing. He's innocent. Now let's bring in another witness, the religious leaders. They're a bit of an unlikely witness, aren't they? But, but look how they respond to Judas's confession. Judas comes and says, I have betrayed innocent blood. And they say in verse 4, what is that to us? Think about it. Judas is saying, the man you're trying to have executed is innocent. And they say, and? So what? What is that to us? It's everything to them, isn't it? Now, why don't they say to Judas, no, Judas, you are wrong. He is not innocent. So we have to pursue a course of action. Justice must be done. But they don't say it. Why? Because he's innocent. His enemies can't get an accusation to stick against him. You see, these religious leaders above anybody else, they're the ones who want to find something wrong with Jesus, but there is nothing to find. Jesus is innocent. Let's bring in another witness, Pilate. Here he is in this passage. Pilate's a pretty shrewd operator. Other historical accounts tell us that he's pretty cruel, um, pretty ruthless, but he's not duped. He he knows what's going on here. Verse 18, he says, he knows the religious leaders are just working out of envy, trying to get rid of someone who's popular. And and, and Pilate shows that he's learned about these people who he is to govern. He, He knows that some are calling Jesus a Messiah, and that title has got great significance. Even the washing of his hands is a very Jewish thing to do, but Pilate knows his audience. And we're not told very much about his examination of Jesus. There's really just one question, verse 11. Are you the king of the Jews? That's his question. Why does he ask it? Well, he asks that because that's the charge the religious leaders have presented to him. King of the Jews is not how the Jews would speak. That's not a Jewish term. It's not a Jewish title. But when you're talking to a Roman governor with responsibility for the Jewish people, you say, this chap thinks he's the king of the Jews. He's capable of causing a rebellion. He's opposing Rome. It's a political charge. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you've said so. Pilate doesn't seem really any more bothered about the charge. He can see this man isn't a threat. And Pilate hasn't got any care for for the religious leaders. He's not concerned for them. So he decides to have Jesus released. In fact, he comes up with a great plan. Why not let Jesus be the prisoner released at the festival? And that's going to be better for Pilate than releasing an actual criminal. The plan backfires, though, doesn't it? The crowd want Barabbas, and so Pilate says to the crowd, well, what shall I do with Jesus? And the crowd say, crucify him. And so Pilate says, why? What crime has he committed? Pilate knows that Jesus has done nothing wrong. And in the midst of it all, Pilate's interrupted with an urgent message from his wife. Uh, she's been dreaming about Jesus. She's disturbed by it. And she says, we see it in verse 19, don't have anything to do with that innocent man. Jesus is innocent. Now, in the midst of all the ugliness of this, of this passage, the character of Jesus shines out in pristine beauty. There is Jesus. He's perfect. And when the wicked fury of men is poured out, the religious leaders concoct lie after lie. He listens and he keeps silent. 
a pilot's been involved in these kind of trials many times. He, he, he knows how these things work, and he's astonished at Jesus. Verse 14, he has great amazement at what Jesus does. See, there's not even the smallest flaw in the character of the Lord Jesus. At every moment, he acted perfectly. Every moment, he was in full obedience to his heavenly Father. Every moment, he acted in full love for those around him. There was never any proud anger rising to fight for himself, to fight for his rights. There was never a hateful attitude towards his enemies. There was never a, a pity party of self-coddling. He dealt with everything and everyone with genuine, authentic rightness all the time. He is beautifully innocent. And his innocence isn't the kind that drives people away, that looks down on people. He wasn't aloof. Jesus' innocence is so beautiful that people flock to him, especially the scoundrels and the sinners. And the Bible puts it like this in the book of Hebrews, that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. He was unblemished. Do you have any idea what that would be like to be unblemished? And to have lived a life so pure that it's like a, a, a field freshly covered with snow that no one's yet had chance to walk on, no animals yet had chance to leave its tracks on. Just perfect, clean, blameless. Jesus is innocent. Didn't feel any guilt. And he stands in sharp, in sharp contrast to everyone else in the passage. Jesus is innocent. And everybody else is guilty. Let's have a look at that. The guilt of everyone else. And think again about that question I asked at the start. What do you do with your guilt? No, day to day, when, when guilt washes over you, how do you process it? There are lots of different ways we can do that. And the different people in our passage show lots of different ways to process guilt. And they all do it pretty terribly. And let's have a look at what they do. First of all, Judas again. Verse 3. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. It's terrible, isn't it? Isn't it terrible? He's right. He has sinned. He's done something terrible. He's, Jesus said to him, it would be better not to have been born to have done this, but he's done it. And all at once he is overwhelmed with the guilt but look how he deals with his guilt. First thing he does is he regrets it. He is seized with remorse. He, he wishes he could just turn back the clock and have done differently. We know that feeling, don't we? And what does he do? Well, the next thing he does, he tries to undo what he did. He returns the money. He doesn't want the money. And the religious leaders deal with him pretty harshly, pretty callously. And yet in some sense they are right, aren't they? Judas has done what he has done, and he can't change that. He is responsible. So, so, so where does that leave him when he tries to undo it, but he can't? He wants to turn back the clock, but he can't? You know, whatever guilt that we have, th there may be something about Judas that is quite familiar. You know, we find our consciences convicted, and I, I know we, we see the outcome of some wrong thing that we've done, and we feel terrible about it. We try to kind of patch it up, but, but we just can't undo it. We know it's on us. We are responsible. And so we take it upon ourselves to pronounce condemnation. Now, imagine a situation when, I know, someone 
Um, maybe they lose their temper with a family member. And they, they, they say something that is just really cutting, cruel. The, the, the kind of thing, those words that will scar for years to come. And they, they, they see straight away in the eyes of their loved ones that they have gone too far. They have said too much. That the words have killed something. They can't make it live again. They try to take it back. They try to say, I didn't mean it, but it's just too late because the words have come out. The damage has been done. So, so what does that person do? Well, they may start to punish themselves. No, they refuse maybe to accept kindness from others. Not, not because they don't think they deserve it, but because they've decided that's how they must suffer for what they've done. It's a, it's a self-punishment. You, you see, that's what Judas does here. Now, his situation is pretty extreme, of course. He's betrayed the Holy Son of God. He's got blood on his hands. He's, he's done wrong and he's guilty. But then what he does with that is he takes it upon himself to pronounce and carry out the judgment. Judas went away, it said, and hanged himself. Now, Judas is a stark warning to us. Now, it's very possible for someone to feel great remorse over wrongdoing. It's possible for someone to be broken and to be grieved by sin and yet, despite that, never come to a point of repentance. It speaks in the Bible, in in the second letter to the Corinthians, about a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Different types of sorrow over wrong that you've done. And it says a worldly sorrow leads to death. A godly sorrow leads to repentance and life. Feeling bad about sin is not repentance. Judas felt bad about his sin and then he added by taking on himself the position of God when he condemned himself to death. So we have to ask, what do you do with your guilt? You feel bad about it, you beat yourself up, you punish yourself. That's what Judas did. And it was hopeless. Who else have we got? How about Pilate? What does Pilate do with his guilt? Now, events don't go the way that Pilate expected. And he, he, he finds himself in a situation where he is about to condemn a man who he knows is innocent. So what does he do? Verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It's your responsibility. If something wrong is being done and Pilate knows it's happening, but then Pilate excuses himself. And really what he says is nonsense, isn't it? No, he's not innocent of this man's blood. He's about to sign the death warrant of an innocent man. But Pilate deals with his guilt by making excuses. He says, this situation has forced me into it. It's someone else's fault. It's not me. I am not responsible. And isn't that so often how we deal with our guilt? Our conscience is pricked. We, we, we clicked on that link and we stayed too long with those images and we feel bad about it. But, but then we start to say, well, I didn't put the link there. The, the fault lies with others. It's the advertisers. It's the internet providers. And, 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 and I've had such a hard time and I'm so tired and I'm so stressed and I'm just in a weak position and there's so much going on. And, and what I did, it's not as bad as what other people do. And so we begin to work the excuses and we work them and work them. And we beat our conscience into submission. Do you know that? Now, what do you do with your guilt? Smother it with excuses? That's what Pilate did. And it was hopeless. Hopeless. Who else have we got? 
What about the religious leaders? What do they do with their guilt? We might say, what guilt? No, they have a plan. They make a plan, and in their passage, they, in this passage, they accomplish the plan. Verse 1, they're making plans how to have Jesus executed. Verse 26, at the end of the passage, Jesus is handed over to be crucified. That's what they wanted to do. They, they stayed on track. Now, they know they're doing wrong. We saw it in their interaction with Judas. But they don't care that Jesus is innocent. They want to eliminate him out of self-interest. They, they know the money that's been returned to them is, is blood money. And they're, they're scrupulous enough not to put it into the temple, temple treasury. And, and yet, what is the wrong that they do? In verse 9 it says, Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. They took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. This is a pretty complex part of our passage. Um, a number of passages from the Old Testament are kind of pulled together, most clearly from the prophet Zechariah, but a number of allusions to parts of Jeremiah. And Matthew uses the Old Testament in a very kind of developed, highly reflective manner. But, but the point is that these Old Testament prophets are writing about how the people of Israel, especially the leaders, were rejecting the Lord and rejecting his anointed king. Uh, Zechariah writes about the shepherd king being got rid of by the people for the price of 30 pieces of silver. That was a slave's price. Uh, and so we hear how the Lord's judgment will come on their rebellious disobedience. In Jeremiah, that is symbolized by the smashing of a potter's jar. And we see now in Matthew, Matthew 27, the religious leaders are valuing Jesus at that same miserable price. Uh, they, they gladly give money to get rid of him. Uh, these leaders, they know that they do wrong, but that what the Old Testament fulfillment does is it clarifies that the wrong they do is to forsake the Lord. It's not simply about the murder of an innocent, it's more than that. It's the rejection of God who stands before them in Christ Jesus. Now, we all know that there is a such thing as false guilt, a feeling of wrong where nothing wrong has been done. But real guilt, objective guilt, is to turn from the living God and pursue any course in life away from him. That's the guilt of these religious leaders. Now, if you stopped them in the midst of this passage and said, what do you do with your guilt? They would say, what guilt? We don't care about that. And when we ask about our guilt, there may be times when we say the same. We say, what guilt? Now, Jesus said on another occasion, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. We see that with these religious leaders. They wouldn't come into the light and let their hearts be examined by the standards of God's word. They wouldn't ask if they were obeying the Lord their maker because they hated the light. They didn't want their deeds to be exposed. We can do that with our guilt. We can never ask that Godward question. We can never ask, well, what does God say about how I live? Because we know if we ask that question, we might not like the answer very much. So what do you do with your guilt? Just press on like these leaders, regardless, careless, Blind to God's perspective. That's what they did. And it was hopeless. Who else have we got? The crowd. 
In verse 20, we're told the religious leaders persuade the crowd to ask Jesus to be executed. And and Pilate says to them in verse 23, this man's blood is your responsibility. And they reply, his blood is on us and on our children. How could they ever say that? How could anybody ever say that? The only way I can imagine that they could say those words is if they are very confident that Jesus deserved to die. Now, like the religious leaders, this is a a real guilt, even when it's not a felt guilt. And we can be like that, can't we? We can be so convinced that we're right, we're in our own kind of echo chamber and everyone around us thinks the same, so we become blind to what is wrong and blind uh, to the things that we do and we end up calling the right wrong and the wrong right. And that's hopeless as well because the guilt remains and remains not dealt with. It's hopeless. And so where does it leave us? Now what do we do with our guilt when there's so many ways to deal with it badly and hopelessly? Well, there is one more guilty party in this passage. Verse 16. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. This man was guilty of crimes that the Romans thought warranted crucifixion. That was the worst form of punishment. This was reserved only for the, for, for the kind of most serious criminals, uh, murderers, terrorists, insurrectionists. Uh, this is Barabbas. He was a criminal of the worst and there was a cross that had been prepared for him. Barabbas was guilty. Now what does Barabbas do with his guilt? Now, the governor's custom was to offer to the crowd to release a prisoner at the festival. So Pilate presents them these two men who were called Jesus. Jesus Barabbas and Jesus the Christ. One undeniably guilty, one undeniably innocent. And to Pilate's astonishment, the crowd choose the guilty. So our passage ends in verse 26. Pilate released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed over him to be crucified. This verse 26 is these events which are recorded as a parable gloriously deep in hope for the guilty. Here we see in this moment the innocent condemned and the guilty going free. The cross prepared for Barabbas is the cross that bears the Christ. Barabbas's punishment is taken from him and put upon the Christ. So let's put our thoughts again on Jesus Christ. In verse 12, When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Jesus made no reply. You see, Jesus is doing what he came to do. He came to save his people from their sins. It was always the plan. And Matthew keeps telling us it was fulfilling what had been written in the purposes of God revealed in the scriptures. Jesus in our passage is standing on the prophecy of Isaiah, written hundreds of years beforehand about him. Isaiah who wrote, He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. You see Jesus' silence loudly proclaims his purpose. He is the pure spotless lamb who gives himself in exchange for his people. As Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. The Lord lays on him the iniquity of us all. And so Jesus was flogged. 
a leather strap with bits of metal twisted into it, designed to tear the flesh from the bone, and then handed over to be crucified. Pierced and crushed and wounded, a lamb to the slaughter, the innocent sacrificed for the guilty. And what did Barabbas do? He did nothing. You see that? He deserves death, but he is released into life. What did he do after this? What did he go on to do? We don't know. His story is not told to us because his story is not the story. The story is Christ. And we ask ourselves again, what can we do with our guilt? We can't do anything with it. But Christ can. No, we can wash and wash like Lady Macbeth, but the stain of sin goes right through to the other side. The stain that pollutes every one of us. We're all born in sin. We live in sin. We swim in sin. We breathe in sin. And we can't do anything to get rid of it. So we stand like Barabbas, guilty. There's nothing we can do. But Christ can. Now we sing the song, don't we? What can wash away my sin? Nothing. And we ought to pause on that nothing. Nothing can wash it away. We can't cover it over with good deeds. We can't bury it with excuses. We certainly can't punish it ourselves. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The only hope for the guilty is to be exchanged for the innocent. And that's what Christ offers to all who trust themselves to him. And so the next time that tsunami of guilt washes over us, what can we do? Take it to the bank. Now the feeling of guilt is like the feeling of debt, the, the, the stress of not being able to pay, the waking in the night all tied up in knots, the being weighed down. And the only objective way to relieve that stress is for the debt to be paid. No, no imagine that. Imagine a gym. Jimmy Jim, he makes some bad financial decisions. He gets into debt. He gets locked into that cycle of debt. And then, and then one day a relative steps in and pays it all for him. And, and after that, Jim may still feel those familiar stresses. He may still wake in the night. That weight of debt may still be on him. And when it is, he, what he needs to do is to go to the bank and check his balance. And when he sees that the account is positive, when he sees there is more than enough to, to spare then that objective reality has the power to change his feeling of debt. And when it comes to guilt, the name of our bank is Calvary. And our balance, as Romans 8 verse 1 says, is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So what are you going to do with your guilt? There's no hope if we deny it, like the crowd, like the religious leaders. There's no hope if we smother it with excuses like Pilate. There's no hope if we do a Judas and we just beat ourselves up. But there is wonderful, wonderful hope and peace if we do nothing. But let Jesus stand guilty in our place and let ourselves be innocent in him. Now somebody wrote this. They wrote, when the chariot of guilt rolls in, and it will, don't run from it. Don't take orders from it. Instead, hop aboard and give it directions. Tell it to drive on over to that hill called Calvary, where Jesus put an end to all of your guilt and shame, and then sit there for a while, smiling and singing of the glory of Christ. What will you do with your guilt? 
Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we ask that you would impress us, impress our hearts uh, with the wonders of the Lord Jesus, the innocent one, who offers us, who offers us, who offers those of us here now to stand in our place, uh, to take our guilt upon himself and to bear it away and to gift to us that status of his innocence. And so, Lord in heaven, when we feel guilt, uh, keep us from excuses, keep us from self-punishment, but bring us quickly to look upon the Lord Jesus and to receive from him what he has done for us. Amen.